As promised to start the year, I'm bringing you a bunch of great interviews. Today's episode is with Andrea Borgen Abdallah, and it is absolute gold. But before we dive into that interview, I want to remind you that our 100th episode is just a few weeks away, and for an entire episode, what I'd like to do is sit back and just enjoy. In order to do that, I need your help. Please visit our website, restaurantstrategypodcast.com. Click the blue button in the upper right corner. That will take you to a page where you'll be able to record a message right there on your computer. It can be 10 seconds. It can be five minutes. But I want you to tell me one way this show has helped you and your business. Something you learned, some insight, some breakthrough. Tell me a story, anything at all. We're a community of chefs, managers, marketers, operators, and we can help each other. The 100th episode is coming up, and I want to celebrate all of you out there, so please help me do that. Again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com, or of course, you can click the link in the show notes. Go do that now, then come back for my interview with Andrea Borgen Abdallah. There's an old saying goes something like this, you'll only find three kinds of people in the world, those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. Each week, we discuss the tools, tactics, and strategies that will establish you as a leader in your market. I want to help you do more covers and drive more revenue. If you've been with us for a while, you know that I usually go back and forth from week to week. So mostly I do a a monologue style format where I choose a specific topic and then we spend that episode uh, picking that topic apart. But then every so often uh, I do an interview and to start the year, to start 2021, I promise to bring you a series of great interviews. Today is a great interview. But before we get to that conversation, I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a website, e-commerce and marketing platform for restaurants. Over 6,000 restaurants worldwide rely on Bento Box to drive high margin revenue and connect with guests through their websites, including those of Jose Andres Think Food Group and Danny Myers Union Square Hospitality Group. Bento Box provides restaurants with powerful tools such as direct online ordering and the ability to sell gift cards, merchandise, tickets, and more directly on your website. To further support the restaurant community during COVID-19, Restaurant Strategy listeners are going to receive 50% off their setup fee when they sign up for Bento Box by March 29th. Get started today by visiting getbento.com slash restaurant strategy. Again, that's G-E-T-B-E-N-T-O dot com slash restaurant strategy. So my guest today is Andrea Borgen Abdallah. She is the owner of a restaurant out in LA called Barcido, and I've been following her journey uh, these past many months. Uh, in November, she appeared on the Full Comp podcast, which if you don't listen to it, uh, it's well worth your time. Uh, really, really great interviews uh, talking about uh, really the kind of the future of the industry, what's broken about the industry, uh, and potentially how to fix it. Um, that was such a great conversation. I knew I just had to have her on this show. There was a lot 
lot of ground to cover, so I want to dive right in. Andrea, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And I do have to correct you. It's actually Barcito and Bodega now because we've rebranded. So Barcito and Bodega. <laughs> and I, I know I'm glad you said that because that is, um, I think, uh, the crux of this conversation. What we're going to talk about is the uh, the journey from going uh, from Barcito to Barcito and Bodega. Um, I'd love to give the audience a little background. Um, where did you grow up and how exactly did you get pulled into the restaurant world? Yeah, so I grew up uh, in Los Angeles, actually. So I'm back home now, but um, went to college up north, Santa Clara University, um, and right out of school, took a job with Hillstone Restaurant Group uh, with their management training program and ended up at four different locations over the course of a little over two years with them and uh, was in New York City as well and was the general manager for Blue Smoke in Battery Park City. So worked for Danny Myers Group as well before moving back to Los Angeles. Great. And so did Hillstone bring you to New York? Is that how you landed there? Yes, exactly. So I started out with them in South Florida at a couple of locations uh, in Cole Gables and Pompano Beach. And then I was up um, in New Jersey, actually, at first, uh, and then eventually at the Park Avenue location on 27th Street. How was the experience of working for Hillstone? Because uh, they're kind of known as being you know, kind of like a smaller chain, but uh, where everything's just like a tightly run ship, really kind of buttoned up. How did that kind of influence your career as you were learning restaurants? Yeah, tremendously. I mean, you, people kind of consider them to be the the military of restaurants. And I, I'd, I'd have a tough time disagreeing with that. You know, I think in terms of of the way they've just really honed in uh, the sort of quality and consistency of their operation and just kind of the, the systems mindedness of it um, was really impressive. And as, as kind of someone just starting out in my career, certainly charted the path for, for what was to come. And I think what eventually got me kind of promoted to, to general manager with Danny Myers group so quickly, you know, I was, I was basically, I was 23 when I got promoted to be the GM of that location. I'm sure that skill set uh, ended up being really valuable, and that's what they recognized at uh, at USHG when they brought you on. Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I think the the sort of juxtaposition of those two restaurant groups is really interesting. You know, I feel like Hillstone was always really good at um, kind of kind of the systems and the efficiency and sort of all of the mechanics of running a restaurant. And, and Danny Meyer's group was incredible when it came to um, sort of the people and obviously, you know, the hospitality, but I think the way that they took care of their team and then how that team in turn took care of its community. Uh, and, and neither company was really very good at the other thing. And so it was a great <laughs> opportunity to kind of apply some of those skills um, in an environment that, uh, that I really loved and thought had so much potential. It's so funny. I'm thinking back to like my uh, my management classes from when I got my MBA. You know, learning about uh, theory X and theory Y, and it seems like you know on display there. Right, theory X is that that militaristic systems. You know, everyone in their place. Um, you kind of enter a conversation with the assumption that. Um, uh, that people don't uh, have your best interest in mind, don't have the operator's best interest in mind. And so you kind of pass on the rules, the guidelines, the, you know, the restrictions to, to keep everyone in their lane. And then theory Y is the opposite. Whereas if you, um, you imagine everyone as having ownership or enrollment uh, in the process and you invite them to the conversation over and over and over again. Uh, and so you kind of came out of these two experiences with, um, uh, you know, with a, a hand in both pots, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I think, 
the two can certainly complement each other when sort of utilized in the right way. And so that was certainly something that I hope to bring to my experience at Blue Smoke. Um, and and just sort of thrilled at the opportunity, especially at such a young age, to, to be able to do that. Yeah, it's so funny because when I came to New York in 2002, the first company I worked for was BR Guest Restaurants. And Steve Hansen was famously, you know, the, you know... <laughs> I mean, soulless, you know, it wasn't about the people. It was about the, you know, the systems to a certain degree. Um, it was about all of these, you know, policies and procedures and and all of that. But um, but I learned a great deal. I worked for that company for uh, for five years off and on. And I learned how to open restaurants through them, uh, which ended up being very valuable later in my career. Because from, I don't know, 2005 to 2012, uh, I pretty much opened restaurant after restaurant after restaurant after restaurant. Um, and a, a, a big part of... Um, a big part of my knowledge, a big part of what I brought to that uh, were the things I learned from uh, from Steve Hansen and from the people that I worked uh, directly under for that organization. And, and I, I end up being really uh, grateful for the experiences that I had. And, and again, all that knowledge that I was able to bring with me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think any experience, you, you learn a lot about what, what to do and what not to do. I'm not going to tell you how much I took from Hillstone and which department. But, but yeah, I, th- I think everything, you know, especially when you're first starting out, is just so valuable and so applicable for, for the rest of your life and your career. Right. So then what was the impetus to move back to Los Angeles? Yeah, I kind of ended up moving back for, for sort of personal reasons. I had a really good friend who was sick who had actually sort of brought me to New York in the first place. Uh, but... But, you know, I think I think there was also a part of me that knew that I I kind of wanted to end up back in Los Angeles. And I think I was starting to get to a point in my career where it sort of felt like wherever I ended up next uh, would probably be sort of a more long term commitment. And I, I kind of I think I was ready to to head back to Southern California. Yeah, it's sunny as we're looking down the barrel of a, of a snowstorm here in New York City. I, I, uh, I envy you. <laughs> So you get back to LA and and what did you do? I mean, did you have it in your mind to open your own place, you know, right from the start? Like like on your way back to LA, did you already have plans in place? Did you did they get formed while you while you were out there? Tell me how that thing happened. Yeah, you know, so I actually I ended up kind of taking a bit of time off. Um and did a lot of traveling. So I, I kind of backpacked uh, most of South America and then um, ended up backpacking most of Southeast Asia as well. And kind of, I think in that time, started to, to formulate some ideas about what I wanted to do next and how I'd kind of approach it. Um, I, would, I kind of did some short stints at home in between trying to save up some money. <laughs> right. uh, I worked for sort of a smaller independent restaurant that was just kind of in my parents' town um and and sort of started to piece things together for for my business plan and for what would eventually become barcito so then so then tell me about that so as you're piecing the plan together um because i want to talk about i'm really fascinated by you know i'll back up and say that um the restaurant industry is so hard it's so hard to succeed it's so hard to do well um and so i'm i've always been fascinated with anybody that kind of um, decides to, to take that on. So if you can, if you can put yourself back in that place and explain to me a little bit, you know, about, about that process, right? That gestation process of where you were putting the idea together and, and, you know, from there to realization, can, can can you kind of walk me through that? Yeah. So, you know, I was, I'm my, my mom's side of the family, um, is from Argentina. My grandparents live in Buenos Aires and I kind of spent my entire life visiting them. Um, and was always sort of, really fascinated with these corner cafes. They're kind of staples of their neighborhood. Um, There's nothing super 
you know, exciting or fancy about them. They just kind of are these gathering places that people come to have a quick coffee or have lunch or have drinks with friends. Um, and so, you know, I, I really loved the idea of creating a space like that um, in Los Angeles and specifically in, in a neighborhood that was kind of a little bit more urban, a little bit more residential, um, super walkable. All these things were really important to me. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think it was necessarily ever meant to be this kind of authentic Argentine cafe or experience. I think it was, it was much more about, uh, being a place kind of driven by community and being super approachable and having, um, you know, a, a, a price point that, that was affordable and that felt, you know, like a place that people could come on a really regular basis. Um, and so that was kind of the, the driving sort of vision as I pieced things together and, you know, thought a lot about little things, you know, kind of taking some of my Hillstone experiences into making the experience a little bit more efficient. So, you know, a majority of our cocktails are on draft as opposed to kind of handcrafted. And so we keep the price point a little bit lower, but are able to kind of scale them accordingly. Um, and, you know, as I kind of started to put these pieces together, you know, of course, formulating a business plan and starting to talk to investors um, also just kind of coincidentally came upon a space that checked a lot of those boxes for me. And that um, was not a completely outrageous price point, especially for a second generation built out space in downtown Los Angeles with a liquor license. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of things just kind of happened in, in a way, um, and kind of in this sort of timing that just, that's just kind of worked out in a lot of ways. Yeah. When did you guys open? We opened in September of 2015. 2015. So you'd been at it for a while and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves when we start talking about the pandemic, but you guys had had time to, to figure it out, to establish yourselves, to build an audience and to, um, to figure out who you were and, and your identity. W what, so I knew you were saying that, you know, in the beginning, you never intended it to be this kind of like authentic Argentinian thing, but, um, but it kind of turned into that. Yeah. You know, I, I think that there are kind of a couple of issues. I think the, pre the sort of first one being that anyone that hears the word Argentine, which is sort of the word that always was associated with my story. Um, and, you know, I mean, for good reason, it, there are a lot of inspirations that were taken and that influenced the space and what it looked like and the menu. Um, but, you know, I, I think every, every Argentine place that people, at least here in Los Angeles, were familiar with are kind of steakhouses with chimichurri and Malbec. And so, <laughs> you know, that was sort of the immediate association. And it was really, really difficult to kind of get out of that niche that we were placed in. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think that also kind of led to folks really expecting us to be this sort of full service restaurant um that was maybe you know a little bit more not fine dining but kind of upper scale um and a little bit less casual than what i had always kind of imagined and being sort of a first-time restaurant owner and in this neighborhood that i think um you know had proved to be kind of more challenging than what i'd anticipated i i sort of leaned into that a little bit more than i should have i said yes kind of more than i said no hmm. and uh i think you know I, I led us astray for those first couple of years um in terms of sort of like the evolution that the menu took and um you know got got a little bit 
further away from that really kind of bare bones gastropub sort of streamlined concept that I had that I had originally imagined and sort of had to continue to retool it as as things changed and as I sort of realized the mistakes that I was making. Yeah. And so then were you able to I mean, to the degree that you were happy with, were you able to kind of pull it back closer to the to the vision that you initially had? Yeah, we made some really dramatic changes. And, you know, I think one of the other kind of big pieces of this puzzle that we're not mentioning, you know, about five or six months into opening our doors, we also eliminated tipping kind of uh, the hospitality included model um, adopted by Danny Meyer and his group. And we, we adopted something almost identical. Um, and I think one of the things that you learn with no tipping and with sort of these higher prices, um, any mistakes or any problems with your business model just become exacerbated so quickly. Uh, and so I think it certainly sped up our realization that we were doing some things that weren't necessarily working. Um, and so, you know, probably about a year later, so a year and a half into us opening, really kind of scaled back the menu, thought long and hard about you know, our neighborhood and what folks would want and what we thought we were really good at and how we could really kind of hone in on those things to, to sort of continue to, to follow that vision. That's so great because that's what I spend so much time talking about. This is a marketing podcast, first and foremost. I mean, that's what I am a marketer. I've, you know, I work with restaurant owners to help them see what you just said so, so clearly, which is that it is all about you know, serving your audience, figuring out who needs to be served and, and how they need to be served and, and how you specifically um, can serve them and, and what you do that's really exceptional, that's really remarkable, that no one else is doing or at least quite like uh, like you're doing it and, uh, and, and really leaning into that. I think that's going to be uh, the way forward. I think that's the way uh, most great companies uh, succeed, uh, certainly true uh, in many other industries, but uh, but in restaurants especially. And I'm hoping that operators continue to see that, that <laughs> it's that thing, right? It sounds so cheesy, but like you're enough, like just be the most you that you can be. And, and that's going to be really compelling uh, because we all have really interesting stories. We all have, you know, and if you can just do that and do that really well and figure out what it is you do really well and, and just present that, you know, unapologetically, I think, um, I think we'll all be in a better place. Yeah. You know, I, th I think that's certainly true of this pandemic, too. Um, it, it's sort of just one of those events that that helps you see so much more clearly all of the things that you are doing wrong. Or you think about some of the things that you did in the before times and you're like, why did I waste so much time and energy focused on this thing that doesn't really serve me? Uh, and, I, and I think this is certainly an, an excellent opportunity to kind of take a step back and, and really think about yeah, what, what makes us shine and what what purpose we serve in the communities uh, communities where we're located. That's that's really gets to the heart of, of what I want to you know, of what I want to talk about. Um, what specifically did you did you guys start looking at when you were like, we'd always done this. But like when the when the pandemic hit, you were like, I can't believe we did that. We can't do that. C can you talk about some of those things? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think for us in particular, we were in this kind of, we are in this um, sort of very residential neighborhood, sort of kind of on the outskirts of downtown Los Angeles, but we we're also right next to the Staples Center, right next to the convention center. And so I think for us, we had a really kind of fragmented demographic of people who came into the restaurant. You know, we had people who were coming to just get a drink before going to a hockey game. We had 
people who are going to conferences and we're looking for kind of a nice place to take clients afterwards. And then we have sort of our, our residential population that's nearby. And I think that this is something that we do in restaurants a lot is we couldn't just cast this wide net. We are trying to appeal to every single person that will walk in the front door. And I think that's a mistake. And it's something that we did for five years. Um, it's a mistake that I am very happy to admit to having made again and again and again. But it's a scary thing to not do it. And I understand why operators always go into that place because it's hard to say, well, we don't need their money, right? Like you need every dollar you can get. So that, I mean, that's the, that's the argument, right? Like, you know, when you say like, like we are for these people and we're not for those people and it, and it kills an operator to think of, again, turning away revenue. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, and I think one of the things that sort of one of the aha moments for me was, you know, Staples Center and Convention Center are long gone. They're not coming back anytime soon. So the only thing that's really left is this, is this residential yeah. population, you know, everyone's working from home. So any offices that were in the neighborhood, you know, those are gone. Those are out of the question for, for at least another, you know, year probably at this point. Um, and who, who are those people and what are they looking for right. and how are we able to provide that for them? And, and, you know, I, I think for me too, it was, it was this opportunity to look at, not just how do we survive this pandemic, but how do we kind of thrive post-pandemic? And what what pivots can we make now that will sort of chart a long-term strategy for us? And I think for us, you know, it, it became kind of increasingly clear um, that sort of this, this bodega model where it's kind of, you know, part bottle shop, natural wine, craft beer, um, was something that was really needed in Los Angeles, sorry, in downtown Los Angeles. And um, that we had sort of a, a captive market for. Um, and, you know, when, when I thought a lot about like the things that we would need to do to make this kind of retail so, because I mean, if you think about it, like there are so few places where you can like walk in, have a nice bottle of wine, not spend 60 bucks, 70 bucks, whatever it is on that bottle of wine. And then also have something that you can take home with you um, and pay retail prices. Um, and so like, you know, I started to think a lot about like the tweaks and the things that I would have to do to make yeah. this business model work where it could be kind of this um, side by side parallel of dine in and take home. Um, and for me, you know, one of the cl clearest things was like full service has got to go, right? Like we are never <laughs> going back to full service again. And I started to think really hard about, okay, who's going to be upset by this and who's not going to be upset by this and who is super happy to just order at the counter and serve themselves water and kind of do all these extra little things. If it means that the price point is right. Um, yeah. And I think that that was one of the biggest realizations. Like that is the market that we need to go after. We need to go after the folks who are happy to to do all of those other little kind of supplemental parts of service, if it means that they can you know get a bottle of wine with a small ten dollar, twelve dollar corkage fee, or they can take a bottle of wine home at retail prices, and it feels casual and it feels approachable. Um, and you know, I think that there are still certainly 
tons of people going to these games and going to these conventions um, and who work nearby who are going to continue to appeal to. So it's not like we're just saying no to them. Um, There's a friend of mine who says, you know, the customer is always right, but not everyone is your customer. Yes. And that's something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. It's so true. It's really funny because uh, uh, by the time that this, uh, that this interview airs, uh, I will have already aired uh, an episode uh, that I recorded with Peter Fader. And Peter Fader is um, a marketing uh, professor at uh, Wharton School at the University of Penn. And he's a very, very smart guy. And he wrote a book called Customer Centricity. And it's all about, you know, like succeeding in business by focusing on the right customers. And he talks about this. He's an MIT. I mean, I think he got his uh, bachelor's, his master's and his PhD all from MIT. He's like a math guy. He's, you know, all analytics. And he's like, I want the numbers. And he talks all about how like the right customers are the ones that will, you know, make your business thrive. And he's got models that he's built to show the customer lifetime value of a, you know, of a specific guest. And uh, and we had a really, really great conversation, um, uh, you know, on this show, just talking all about that and how it related um, to restaurants. I wanted to go back and I wanted to say that that uh, you don't know this, but on my notes here, uh, as I was preparing for this interview, uh, I wrote down surviving versus thriving. And you said that just a couple of minutes ago. Um, and it is a conversation that uh, that I think is so important um, that we talk about, you know, small restaurants operating, you know, at 2% profit, 4%, profit, 5% profit, right? Like, like that's surviving. That's barely squeaking by, barely giving, you know, shaking off enough profit to uh, to reward your investors who took a chance on you. Uh, let alone uh, to give uh, the operators, right, the managers, um, the owners, you know, anything, um, anything worthwhile. Um, but I think this uh, this whole pandemic is, uh, I think, can be viewed as either a crisis or an opportunity. Um, and I'm glad to hear you say that it's an opportunity because I think it is. I think it's a wake up call uh, for the industry to really think about what it means, right? Like to be in business, you have to make profit. Th- that's the definition of a business. And if you're not making profit or enough profit to make it worthwhile, then there's no reason to be in business. Doesn't matter how much you like it or you know how much it's fulfilling your passion or your life dream or whatever. It's got to make money, and the more money you make, the the more or you can, you know, take care of the people in your community, whether that's staff or patrons or whatever, right? Like the the more profit, the, the more you can do, the better good, uh, the more good you can do, the, the better you can, um, the better you can do your job. And so I love this conversation about surviving versus thriving. Um, I do want to pause for a second and and talk about, so, so Barcido, at the beginning of the pandemic, talk to me about what happened and and your decision to basically pursue this this grocery model, which a lot of places have done. Um, so talk about what it was and 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 how it pivoted and shifted, and then to to what it is now, if you can. Yeah, you know, I think basically the the day that we were locked down, that it became very clear, you know, we were not going to be able to to continue dining, and that. Um, you know, this, this sort of shutdown and pandemic were likely to last a very long time. Yeah. You know, one of the first things we did was figure out, we have a couple of employees who had come through a workforce development program and, you know, were formerly homeless, lived in subsidized housing. And so, you know, my first concern was what was going to happen with them if we, if we chose to close. Um, and it became really clear that they had no safety net, could not wait for unemployment, and that it was basically kind of this paycheck that was keeping them afloat. So securing their jobs became kind of priority number one. And then priority number two, you know, my 
entire front of house staff was furloughed, but I committed to paying the full premium for their for their health insurance. I think the only thing that scared me more than losing my restaurant was, you know, shirking all of my employees off of their health insurance during a global pandemic. Um, and so I think those two initial decisions and commitments that we made uh, really set the tone for for everything that that kind of happened moving forward. And so, yeah. you know, we the first week was a scramble to just try and put your entire menu into takeout packaging and call it a day. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, as, as time went on and as sort of everyone's needs, ours, our communities um, changed on, on basically what felt like an hour to hour basis, you know, right. continue to just so try true. to figure out how we could continue to be part of that conversation. Um, and you know not necessarily make money not even necessarily break even but at least um it just felt like people needed us um in a way that they hadn't before and and it just never felt more important to kind of rise to that occasion um and so you know one of the first kind of big things that we decided to do was basically start offering uh, kind of grocery goods and um, produce boxes and rice and beans and all these things that were a total nightmare to repackage and try to sell at, at prices that didn't feel like we we're totally taking advantage of people. But especially downtown, you know, the grocery stores had lines for blocks yeah. and nothing on their shelves. You know, I had so many friends who live in the neighborhood who who just who couldn't get milk and eggs and bread i mean it was just it was wild and so any uh, sort of opportunity that we had to be able to help bridge that gap just felt really important to us um and then you know i think as, as time kind of continued to go on and as things at the sort of grocery store started to um stabilize a little bit we started to really think about who we were who we want to be um, and what could sort of help us survive this moment, but also um, be a long-term strategy for us moving forward. You know, I didn't want to continue to pivot every week that things changed or that our elected officials decided to change the rules and that you know that was something that especially here in la and i think everywhere was happening a lot it's like oh you can open indoor dining no you can't oh you can open outdoor dining no you can't um and so you know we wanted to really think outside the box in terms of what our restaurant was and and could become um and I was also I was kind of part of this sort of really cool conversation that the James Beard Institute for the Future had, where sort of the the premise of the conversation was was reimagining restaurants and taking all of these assumptions that you have about what makes a restaurant successful. And it's things like, you know, you're only busy from the hours of twelve to one o'clock and six to nine o'clock. So you have to kind of price your menu a certain way because you're bleeding money every other hour of the day that you're open. Um, and things yeah. like, you know, your restaurant is a physical space. 
you are only making money if that physical space is full of people. Uh, and kind of turning those assumptions on their heads. And especially during the pandemic, it becomes a lot easier to imagine a world in which your restaurant is not a physical space because none of our restaurants are physical spaces anymore. But it at least right. kind of gave me these ideas about what could be possible and what could really have legs to to move us into the future yeah it's one of the first things i do when i when i come in and uh when i've been brought in to 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 open a restaurant or to to talk to people who are who are looking at you know opening a space and they say oh we got this space we got this great chef we got this concept and you know we just need somebody to look over the the business plan and all this and it's one of the things i kind of joke around about i said i said you got here x number of covers a night at you know x number of dollars a head I, like I, I don't understand this like oh that's how many we're going to do for dinner I was like okay what about breakfast and lunch and your late night and all this oh, oh I think this is just going to be a dinner place I was like okay why would you you know like we all understand why a place would want to just be a dinner place or whatever but why would you knowingly go into business uh, you know and you know just say we're just going to make money four hours out of the 24 hours like you should you should figure out a plan to do you know what are you making how are you making money from 7 to 10 in the morning how are you making money from 10 to 12 what are you making what are you doing to make money from 12 o'clock on like all the way around the best restaurants would be a you know a breakfast place a lunch place a happy hour place a dinner place and then flip over and turn into a nightclub from yeah. <laughs> midnight to four and then you you clean it from four to seven and I joke and I joke with people and I said if you want to do it right that's that's the concept you need to come up with how can you be all of those things i said well you can't and i said okay well that's fine but just understand where we're starting from like but whatever you've done this this business plan you're handing to me has already uh, given up on on all of those other hours out of the day and you're just saying we're just going to make money from six to ten or six to eleven and and it just seems ludicrous and i think this pandemic i think has opened people's eyes to it you know like how else can we make money yeah yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're also, I think, part of what makes this pandemic so challenging is, is we're an, an industry that's really set in its ways and hasn't really, you know, with, with the exception yeah. of a few kind of like technological advances, really hasn't played with its business model very much um, in the last several decades. No, but I mean, even go back, right, 250 years ago, right, in Paris, when the, when restaurants were invented, you know, early 1780s, it's pretty much the same model. It's, I mean, you know, Brett Severin was, was writing about it, and, and it's the same thing. It's a pretty room with nice tables, with waiters there to get you what you want, they hand you a menu, like literally, you sit down, you decide what you want, you tell somebody what you want, they go tell somebody else, they make it, they bring it to you, after you've consumed everything, you pay for it. What has changed in 250 years? Like, and, and meanwhile, the rest of the world is changing, right? Retail is being turned on its head because why would I go to a store when I can just as easily have it sent to me? And if I don't like it, I can just send it back in the same package it came. Like, everything else is being turned upside down and becoming more efficient, um, you know, better for the consumer, providing a better experience. But here in restaurants, we're like, nope, you still got to come here between the hours of 6 and 10. You still got to reserve before you come here. You still only pay at the end. You, like, all of the things. And technology exists. There's very little innovation that we've that we've done, right? We used to write it on a piece of paper and hand that to the chef and the chef used to make it. Now we put it into a computer and the computer spits out that same piece of paper. But like, <laughs> there's no innovation. There's, I mean, like, you know, I don't know. It, it, it blows my mind. All of the things that have that have come about just in the last 50 years and, uh, and we're still doing it the way they were doing it 240 years ago. 
Yeah, yeah, big time. So yeah, you know, I, th- I think for me, it was it was kind of hearing those words and, and really trying to figure out how it could apply to us. And, you know, this this sort of idea of, of having all of these different revenue streams, that's not just based on people coming in person to eat in your restaurant every day. Uh, that just even, you know, post pandemic, if things are ever to return to normal, whatever that even means. Um, I just don't want to live that life anymore where I'm just hoping that someone walks through the door. Yeah. So what are you guys doing now? So it's now it's so tell me what it is. If I walk in today, what am I going to find uh, in the daytime versus at night? Um, explain explain it to me. Yeah. So, I mean, right now things are still pretty weird um, because <laughs> we, we don't allow guests into the restaurant at all. So we we basically set up a takeout window. So we have someone taking orders. Just we essentially have our door propped open and, and a menu set up. Uh, but 95% of our orders are all placed online. So really kind of e-commerce focused. Um, we do have still a menu of, of kind of regular food items. We've definitely changed that a lot since the pandemic just to make it kind of more takeout friendly. Um, so kind of hot sandwiches, deli sandwiches, sides, empanadas, uh, things kind of of that nature. Um, Basically, yeah, not a single item is, is over $10 just because that also felt like, you know, keeping the price point really approachable. I think no matter who you are right now, you're you're feeling the squeeze in some way. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, kind of continuing to pursue that that sort of neighborhood approachable kind of angle was really important for us. And, you know, I think it became really clear early on that we weren't competing with other restaurants. We were competing with with grocery stores and corner stores and you know our price point needed to kind of reflect that so aside from the prepared foods uh, that you just described like what what kind of like grocery items what kind of i mean you said like the natural wine and the craft beer and stuff like that what else so so for the most part um that that is kind of our our primary focus uh, as far as like the retail segment goes we did sort of have a, a larger assortment of grocery items kind of at the beginning but once grocery stores kind of stabilized it just didn't feel um like a unique sort of value proposition anymore um yeah and then we do a few of our own kind of house items so some of our sauces we we jar and sell um and a couple of other odds and ends and cured meats and and cheeses and things of that nature but but the majority of it is really focused on the kind of natural wine craft beer selection and you know we basically used to carry whatever six or seven wines by the glass and you know something kind of comparable on the beer side and now we have like over 70 SKUs in each category um so so a huge selection yeah so then close your eyes if you can and imagine like like everyone's vaccinated pandemic is a thing of the past what do you think i don't know do you you have a vision for for how this looks when when we return to quote unquote normal like how, how these two pieces you know come together yeah you know and every single decision that i've made i've i've made with that sort of future in mind you know i haven't done a single thing that i didn't think i'd be able to to kind of continue on that that sort of felt really important to me really early on to not continue to invest in things that that you know <laughs> once the pandemic was over would would be rendered useless um right and so you know for me, I think the idea is that we continue to be kind of a lunch and dinner place, um, entirely counter service, no more full service. Everything kind of has to be ordered at the counter and kind of a more streamlined service model from that standpoint. 
uh, you know, we continue to offer this like sort of tremendous selection of, of wine and beer kind of with, with low corkage fees if folks are going to dine in and, um, you know, no corkage fees. So continue to, to price things at retail prices for folks who want to take it home. Um, and, and the e-commerce component, I think, will continue to be a really big part in that. And so we spent a lot of time and money um, really kind of rebranding and revamping our website, making it really easy to use. Um, and it is. And we actually just launched. So we, we were already doing, you know, curbside pickup, kind of same day local delivery. Uh, and actually on Friday just launched uh, California shipping as well. So we'll be able to ship uh, wine and beer and kind of gift boxes and things to, to folks all throughout the state. Awesome. How do you, how are you handling delivery? Are you doing delivery at all? Yeah, so we do. Um, we we work with a, a point of sale that integrates with um, Postmates, and so we're not actually on their marketplace, but we use them as our third party delivery driver. So we pay them a pretty small fee, um, and they they handle all of our deliveries for us, and it gets like a five or six mile radius. So, and are you guys listed on any of the third party delivery sites? We are not. No, we do everything in house. Had you been before or at the beginning of the pandemic, or was did you kind of see that? for what it was. I, I've played with it on and off. I've never really liked it partially because the integrations are so terrible for the most part. Um, and then obviously the fees are just astronomical. And so unless I think you're going to pad your pricing, um, which also kind of does some damage to, to your brand, um, I just don't see how that math works. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's this is um, this is something that I felt for a long time. And now it feels like the entire rest of the world is starting to see it. I mean, uh, what was interesting is that I think a lot of places that are on those sites, right, a lot of, you know, the places that we think of as being delivery restaurants, right, like the Chinese restaurant, the Mexican restaurant, the sushi restaurant, you know, it's all this like, quote, unquote, like ethnic food, you know, neighborhood based. And then what happened is when the pandemic came, suddenly, all these like first class restaurants got into the delivery game. And what was interesting is that they kind of saw they were like, wait, what, 20 percent, 20, 30 percent commissions? Like, no, thanks. And, and now we're finally seeing some, you know, some traction people, you know, starting to, to realize, uh, you know, recognize it for what it is. But um, I just like I fear uh, for the future of it because it, it, you can't sustain that kind of those kind of commissions. Yeah, I, I think you have to be a very specific type of business model with very specific margins to kind of make it work and, and sort of scale it. It's an odd order here. Or there also doesn't help you too much. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, um, I mean, I just think it's I think it's so interesting. And, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, other restaurants um, pivot successfully i've seen some refuse to pivot um which has been you know weird to see but i think that's really interesting about what what you uh you know what you guys figured out is that like you know putting all your eggs in one basket right like we know this about you know investing right we have to diversify our portfolio like in our business why would we not diversify our portfolio why would we not you know add all these you know different revenue streams if we could if we could um and i think this is what restaurant owners are figuring out i mean this seems to be what you figured out very very quickly yeah you know i, I think i think for us um in addition to to kind of like answering this question about well how do you make money not between the hours of 12 to 1 you know beyond those hours that um that i sort of mentioned earlier um it's also about you know how do we continue to to operate at the price point that that we think is reasonable and that we want to operate at and sort of make 
make the numbers work and and be able to scale it appropriately. Um, and so, you know, we, we really did a lot of kind of cutting of the fat when it came to how we operated our business. You know, one of the examples that I use is our espresso machine. We had an espresso machine and we, you know, would take two minutes or three minutes to make a latte and um, kind of waste all of this time and labor and money and extra milk that, you know, then inevitably got steamed and would end up down the drain. Um, yeah. And we got rid of it. And it was like, why are we doing this? We're only going to do cold <laughs> brew and we're going to do drip coffee. And that's it. And like the espresso machine is at home now. I love it. It's great. My husband's <laughs> Um And, you know, it's just like, and, you know, people come up and they ask for a latte and I'm so sorry, we don't have that. Would you like a drip coffee? And like half the time they say yes and half the time they go to Starbucks anyways. Um, right. <laughs> that's okay. Like I've, 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 I've reconciled with that decision. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's examples like that, but applied to like every aspect of our business, every single menu item. Um you know, things that I think about that we did that just like, why did we spend so much time and money focused on something that just wasted so much effort? Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, it, ours is a, is a handmade product, right? It takes, it takes people to prep it, it, takes people to make it, it takes people to serve it, it, takes people to clear it away. Like, like it takes, it's very like people heavy to do stuff. And um, I've worked with chefs who are really good at like, you know, designing a menu that picks up very easily, which is a lost art, right? Especially now in the <laughs> in the age of tweezers, you know, there's this everything's precious <laughs> and everything's played it like this, you know. But but some of the best, you know, I worked at uh, Gotham for years, and I worked with uh, Chef Portali, and uh, Chef Alfred Portali is uh, is a genius. Uh, aside from the fact that he creates really delicious food, um, he creates food that's easy to pick up, that seems way more complicated than it is. But when you stand there and you watch these guys on the line pick it up like it, it actually that's how you can do 300 400 covers on a saturday night because nobody's pulling out tweezers nobody's pulling out you know you know any of this like precious kind of stuff it's um you know puts together very very simply very easily and it tastes great and i think it's i think it's a lot i think it's a lost art i just sorry i can't help yeah, but laugh about absolutely. it absolutely yeah i mean i think you know find, finding a balance is super important but i also think it kind of comes back to that idea of, of really knowing who you are and knowing what you're good at and, and focusing on that. You know, if you have 20 seats and you can assemble each plate with tweezers, like, great, go for it. Charge accordingly. Um, yeah. But if your goal is 400 covers a night, like, don't even think about it. Well, you got, and again, it has to do with, you know, understanding your audience. Like, who's your audience? What do they want? And and how can you serve that, right? And, you know, at Gotham for 35 years, it was about, you know, being this institution, doing really great food for the masses. And, and, and that's what it is. And you go to a place like a Terra or French Laundry or, you know, fill in the blank here, any of these great restaurants. Yeah, it is about getting taken care of. And it is about, you know, an over-the-top experience. But somewhere along the way, especially as, like, food culture became so big in this country, um, suddenly, you know, there was a sommelier at every corner restaurant. Like, like every corner restaurant doesn't need a sommelier. They need 20 bottles. They need 40 bottles if you want to be really... Uh, really ambitious, but they don't need 200. They certainly don't need 500, and they don't need somebody on payroll to guide every guest through there. You know, if it's just a, again, just a, you know, corner spaghetti sauce place, a, you know, a corner French bistro, like it, it just doesn't need that. I think that one of the things um, that gets brought up a lot, especially when we're kind of having this conversation about trimming the fat, is is that 
I, th- I think there's an important distinction between full service and hospitality. And I think you don't necessarily have to have a server coming and touching your table every five minutes or coming and refilling your water or, uh, you know, processing your credit card transaction in order for it to have felt like a hospitable experience. And I think this is also especially true when it comes to, to kind of technology and the way that we implement technology in our restaurants and sort of automate some of these things. And I think sort of when done correctly and when applied correctly, these can all really elevate the hospitality of the experience and the connection that you make with the guest and hopefully kind of trimming some of this fat and and really focusing on kind of what matters will build your relationships with guests and give you more time to spend talking about a bottle of wine or more time to ask them how their day is going as opposed to all these other kind of frivolous things that I think are distractions and that um, kind of eat away at, at our time and our bottom line. I could not agree more. And it's it's funny, the you know, what I always say about this industry is that like the guest is at the center of what, what we do. It, I mean, literally without the guest, we have no business. If nobody comes in to, to enjoy what we have to give, um, then, then there is no business. And yet so often they don't get factored in at all. They're just covers. How many covers are we going to do tonight? How many covers do we do last Saturday night? Rather than understanding that they're people, they're people who want something, they're people who have needs and desires and fears and, and all of that. And maybe that sounds like all earth crunchy woo-woo, but but I think what's really interesting about this pandemic is that and we've been talking about this here, you know, you said, you know, what does this what does this crowd need? What do our patrons need? What kind of place do they need at this time? You know, at, at this at this huge climactic moment moment in in our lives like like what do they need and i think before this we we didn't really do that so much we talked about you know you know steps of service we talked about you know covers we talked about how we're gonna do this or that you know whatever and but not enough of talking about like what do they want what can we do for them how can we how can we make their lives better how can we make them have such a great time uh, that they're going to talk about us and you know recommend to other people because other people are also looking for that kind of experience and and on and on and on and I and I love that it feels like that I think the places that are going to survive have figured out that it's all about the guest and it's all about you know service not selling and and it's about putting them back back in the middle of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I, I think I think it's one of those things that when it, when we talk about the things that we felt like we were good at, you know, I think we were re- always really good at, at taking care of our employees who would in turn take care of our guests. And, you know, even with the Staples Center numbers and the convention center numbers, I mean, more than 50% of our guests were regulars. Um, and so, so in kind of like formulating this business model and this plan for the future, they were, they were certainly always at the center of it because that's what we built our business on. Yeah. Um, it's so funny. We talk a lot about community and I think it's very easy to forget about where community starts, which is, you know, that, that central group, um, that are executing your vision, you know, your, your cooks, your porters, your dishwashers, your bussers, your servers, your managers, your, you know, the team, that's your community first and foremost. That's where you, you know, have a responsibility. And they're the ones again, who provide the hospitality. They're certainly touching more of the guests than, uh, than any operator ever would, uh, over the course of a week. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, they're on the front lines and I think, you know, especially, especially for us, 
you know, we're lucky in that we, we've had a really incredible front of house staff who's really stuck around. And so I have, I have, you know, two employees who have been around for, for all five years. I have two employees who left and came back. Um, I think the other employee has been around for four years, so not much less than the rest. And, and, you know, if it wasn't, those same faces over and over again that we're building these relationships, you know, we wouldn't have had a chance. Yeah. So I think this is a good segue to chat about tipping. And uh, because you said that when you opened uh, Barcito, you did it, uh, you know, normal. It was, you know, people tipped on their meal. And then quickly after that, you shifted to a hospitality included um, model. Uh, and then since you you went away from that, and of course now it's something else entirely, but can, can you talk a little bit about, you know, tipping, the future of tipping? How, how do you feel about this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so when I first, I, you know, I, I think the, the inequity between front of house and back of house was, was always something that, that bothered me. Um, the last several kind of years, especially before I opened my own restaurant. And, um, you know, we opened in September of 2015. I think it was that October that Danny Meyer had made his, his big announcement that he was going to eliminate tipping across his restaurants. And, um, you know, I think there's so much about tipping that is incredibly problematic, especially in states that only pay its employees $2 and 13 cents an hour, which is the majority of the states in this country. And, uh, you know, the idea that an employee's wage is based on the whims of a guest is just horribly backwards to me. Uh, and, and especially then, you know, five years ago, you were not allowed to share those tips with, with your kitchen employees. And so, you know, um, they're, there's this kind of weird power dynamic, I think, between employees and guests. And then there's a weird power dynamic amongst employees as well. And who's who's really deserving of that tip? You know, did the guest tip because they enjoyed their meal? Did they tip because they enjoyed the service? Do the two really need to be parsed out? Um, it is it is a team sport. And so, you know, eliminating tipping at the time certainly felt like the only kind of reasonable and long-term solution that was available. And, um, and you know, I think in a lot of ways it did work. Um, you know, I had great results with my employees. Their income was, was really stabilized. And so, you know, the highs weren't as high, the lows weren't as low. And so, you know, they're kind of week-to-week earnings were, were pretty predictable, which I think was something that, that they really liked. Um, the challenge was really with, with guests and, and helping people understand that, you know, our prices couldn't be compared to our neighbors because you had to pay an extra 20% on, on those other person's prices. Right. Uh, and that was, that was a story that was just really, really difficult to tell. Um, and, you know, eventually, as time went on, and I think as this kind of conversation grew momentum, as other people tried their hands at different com- compensation models, um, you know, eventually the laws did change, and and you were allowed to share tips with the back of house, and we eventually decided to pivot to to that kind of a model. It just felt um, like the better move, kind of for everyone involved. And this is actually super frustrating and ridiculous, but um, you know, I kind of ran the numbers, and I realized that if we split tips between the front and the back, not only would 
everyone receive a way or I'm sorry, would not not only would everyone receive a raise, the restaurant would be spending less money yeah. because of how workers comp and payroll taxes and the like were calculated. And it was just the most frustrating <laughs> <laughs> equation, but that is what sort of turned out to be true. And so we ended up changing over to a tip sharing model. Right. So then that seems to be because I'm a big fan of of hospitality included. I, I adore uh, I adore the experience of going to a restaurant, and when I realize that you know it's all included, I'm like, oh, that's great. What I see is what I get. Though, you know, no extra you know chunk of money I'm going to have to spend at the end. This is just this is what it is. Um, I really like that experience. I've been <laughs> I've been working in restaurants for twenty one years, and I've been uh, dining in restaurants for much longer. And I just think the experience is um, is. Better. Uh, and then again, having worked in restaurants, I think the idea of you know even uh, even paychecks is uh, is really nice. So yeah, you're not having these great December paychecks as a server, but you're also not having these crummy August paychecks. Um, and I think it will be the future. Um, but I'm I'm curious because uh, almost everybody who has switched over has switched back and and maybe tip sharing, you know, between front of house and back of the house is the future, but it still doesn't seem like like the final destination. It just feels like where we're at now. Um, do you feel that or do you think that that's something that's going to be around for a long time? Yeah, you know, I think I think it depends. What really needs to happen next is is the subminimum wage of $2.13 an hour needs to go away forever and Every employee in the United States needs to be paid a living wage, whether tips are included or, or not. Um, and I and I think that has to be sort of step one in in charting the path for a compensation model in our industry that that works. Um, and I think until sort of everyone is on a bit of a level playing field, it's going to be impossible to tackle um, whether. You know, we include tips, whether there are service charges, how those service charges are distributed. I mean, it's 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 so complex and it's so convoluted because we've been doing it this way for so long. And, and to kind of individually each try our hand at at changing the course of that conversation is practically impossible, even when it's really big, powerful restaurant groups who who are kind of at, at the head of that movement. Um, and so I think, I think that's certainly the direction it needs to go in. Um, I still don't right. like tipping. I am not a fan. I don't like it as a restaurant owner. I do not like it as an employer. I do not like <laughs> it as a guest. Um, I think everything about it is awkward and doesn't make sense, to be honest. I mean, there are so few industries that, that use tipping as, as a compensation model. Yeah. And I just, I really hate it. <laughs> Yeah, I listen. I I totally agree, and I um again, I, I think it's going to topple eventually, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know how that gets there, short of kind of congressional action. And the thing that I don't like about this conversation is that so much of uh, this podcast is about keeping things actionable, like like what can we do today to make a difference in our business? What can we um, plan today to do tomorrow to make a difference in our business? And this feels like uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll wait until until people you know raise the minimum wage and and um i'll use that to segue over into i think the last uh, the last topic because i want to be really respectful of your time but i, I want to talk about 
your uh, your life as an activist because you got uh, your main job, which is as a restaurant owner, and your side hustle <laughs> is uh, is basically uh, as an activist. <laughs> and um, and I think tipping is certainly one of the things that you're uh, you're very outspoken about. Um, but you've been very vocal the last several months. So talk more about your activism, please. Yeah. So um, you know, I think. I, I've been involved kind of in a lot of organizations, One Fair Wage, sort of primary amongst them, which is an organization that advocates to, to eliminate the, the subminimum wage sort of across the country. Um, but, you know, I'm also involved with a lot of kind of local business advocacy groups, California Restaurant Association amongst them. And, you know, I think in the last couple of months, um, what's really begun to, to frustrate me in in our industry in the restaurant industry is this sort of insistence on clinging to reopening as the thing that is going to save us um and here in southern california where outdoor dining was was sort of shut down not so long ago um you know so many restaurant owners who I think know very well what is in the best interest of public health and public safety, but who have just been left with so few options um, and no government relief and no clear plans for government relief to be figured out anytime soon. Um and so I was just I was I was starting to grow really tired of of this rhetoric surrounding reopening and and also kind of fearful that if as an industry all we talked about was reopening whether it's for indoor dining or outdoor dining or what have you you know at some point our government officials might say okay great here you go you can reopen and provide us no other relief and um, in in no world do I think that is an acceptable option. Um, you know, just just from my own experience, I'm running a business model that I could run out of 250 square feet, but I'm being asked to pay for 2,250 square feet. Um, and, you know, yeah. there's just, there's no way to pivot your way out of, you know, all of this retail space that has been designed and permitted and built out for a specific use, which is considered a public health threat. Um, and so, you know, I, I wrote this this op-ed <laughs> for Life and Time because I was just, I was so frustrated hearing the news and, and hearing these county meetings where restaurant owners were calling in and yelling at our supervisors to allow us to reopen. Um, when I just, it felt like such a distraction. It felt like a distraction from what really needs to happen, which is that our government officials, whether those are local, state, or federal, need to give us industry-specific relief. Um, and so, you know, I basically wrote this op-ed calling for a, a rent strike, not necessarily with the idea of convincing uh, our entire industry to stop paying our rent, but more with the hope that they already were withholding rent in some way, shape, or form. I certainly already had been, and that we just do it with a bit more of a collective voice and, and agenda. Um, and so, 
you know, I'm still kind of in, in the throes of that a little bit in addition to trying to manage a busy holiday season with gift boxes that are getting shipped throughout California. But, um, but yeah, basically started this, this sort of movement, no relief, no rent in the hopes of um, organizing our industry a little bit and calling for things that I think are, are actually going to save us and going to help bail us out and help us not just survive this, but, but, you know, thrive post pandemic. Yeah. That's, that's the, one of the things that I really hope comes out of this is because, you know, when we're all these little silos, um, you know, with no kind of, you know, collectivism here, um, it's hard to get anything done, right? That's true. There's, you know, big companies, big industries, hire lobbyists, and they all band together and pay for those lobbyists and all that. And um, I don't know, many people uh, can make more of a difference than just, you know, one person at a time. And uh, it's really easy to feel very, very alone. I think, you know, again, I think of the audience uh, of this podcast, it's a lot of independent uh, restaurant owners, managers, chefs all across the country. Um, and they all have different, um, you know, different backgrounds and experiences. But this is one thing I think they really share. Um, it's it's really easy to feel like you're just in this alone. And, and I hope um, that we can start figuring out ways to, to all band together. Yeah, I hope so too. You know, to your point, I mean, the California Restaurant Association, I think, I think does a good job. But but again, their interests are always going to be aligned with with where the money is. And it's it's those big chains that really fund the organization. Um, and so it's, it's hard for us kind of independent small operators to have a voice or to even have the time to try to try and dedicate to, to some of these efforts. But, you know, I, th- I think it's become increasingly clear that it's it's never been more important to to kind of band together and, and ensure that our voice is heard. I totally agree. So, you know, everything is gloom and doom. Everybody says, you know, we're going to lose 50 percent of the restaurants, 60 percent of the restaurants in the back end of this. What? um what do you see for the future of restaurants, good, bad, and ugly? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think part of my fear with with the direction things are headed in with with kind of relief talks is that the, the numbers are are really black and white. And, um, and I just think that there are so many shades of gray. Um, you know, when we talk about the number of jobs lost and the number of restaurants lost, um, Part of my fear is that our officials look at numbers and say, oh, you know, that's actually not so bad. That's a small percentage or they're going to quickly, you know, turn around into something different. But I think what what scares me most is is the quality of what we're going to lose, both in terms of, of the types of businesses and I think the types of jobs that that we as, as independent restaurants provide. Um, and I think, you know, just so many folks come through our restaurants and use them as as launch pads into other careers and into other better jobs. Um, and I think if we all get kind of swept up by by the chains and the banks and whatever our vacant retail spaces turn into, um, <laughs> that's a future for our communities that I'm I'm really nervous about. Um, it's just not a community that I want to live in. And so I think I think that's what scares me the most right now is that there's sort of this this inability to read between the lines when it comes to how our officials are are assessing this situation, um, whether they're just looking at the tax revenue or whatever other metrics they're using to to make these decisions. Um, but I think you know the kind of 
color and vibrancy that that independent restaurants contribute to their communities and and again the jobs and the types of jobs and the types of people we employ um i think that there's a lot of value there and it's it's really um it's not being assessed correctly and uh if something doesn't change really quickly i'm afraid there isn't going to be any going back yeah any advice for uh, for restaurant owners still hanging on and any advice for restaurant owners or people who are sitting on the sidelines and have been waiting for the right opportunity uh, to open their space? And sadly, there are going to be, you know, second generation spaces available. Um, what advice for, for that group? Yeah, you know, I think I, I, I hate listening to people talk about pivoting and having all of this advice about this is the pivot that you need to do and this is what works and this isn't what works because it is so much a one size fits one um <laughs> kind of model you know you really need to to take a long look inward and think about i mean i think one think about what kind of a business are you actually going to be happy running i think yeah. that is most important because if you're taking a look around and the, the sort of options that are available to you are not that exciting i mean Cut your losses while you can, I think. Um, but I think, you know, think about what's gotten you to this point, what's really worked, um, what what you like about your business. Um, and I think, you know, really, who has gotten you to that point? How, how do your customers and your guests relate to your business? how have their needs changed? How do you think their needs are going to be changed forever? Because at least in my community, everyone's needs have changed and the way that they interact with us um, is never going to go back. Yeah. You know, I think, especially for us, the, the sort of convenience aspect, um, the ability to order online, the ability to, to do kind of curbside pickup all of these things are things that i do not think are disappearing once the vaccine shows up um and so really figuring out how you can take all of those elements and build a business that kind of meets all of those collective needs that you're going to be excited about that you're going to be good at and that that can really do well as as we continue to navigate this and and hopefully see its end sooner rather than later um, but I think, yeah, thinking a lot, a lot about longevity and all of the things that make your business tick and that make it work and really kind of just dialing those in and taking this time when we uh, kind of, not that there are a lot of blessings in this time because it's been a very dark and very challenging time. Um, but I do think we have a little bit more time to really step back and and think these things through in a way that we can't when we're opening our doors every day and hundreds of people are there and you know the chaos that kind of ensues um and you know i think i think we operate our businesses in this really distracted space a lot yeah. um yeah i always say that it feels like we're running around putting out fires so much that we uh you know we, we lose sight of of the the long term the vision the, the bigger picture Absolutely. I mean, the, the day to day is a is a battle. Um, and so it, it becomes so difficult to extricate yourself from that situation and have a bit of perspective and think about 
what's gotten you there and what will get you to the next year, to the next five years. Well, I think coming out of a year where it was, uh, you know, we were just looking hour to hour, day to day, you know, week to week. Um, I think the idea that we can start uh, looking at longevity and thinking about longevity, I think, is as good a place as any to, to leave this conversation, I think, to send people out into the world. Um, Andrea, I, I really appreciate the uh, the time that you gave us today. Um, where can people go to learn more about uh, everything you're doing? <laughs> yeah, so Barcito and Bodega, we're at uh, BarcitoLA.com, BarcitoLA on Instagram, and then uh, no relief, no rent, uh, org and no relief, no rent on Instagram. Excellent. We will put all those links in the show notes. Uh, I so appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Again, I want to thank Andrea for taking the time to uh, to sit and chat with me. I hope all of you guys uh, enjoyed uh, the conversation. Uh, as I mentioned, all of the links are in the show notes. Go check out Barcito and Bodega uh, and check out some of the uh, the activism work uh, that Andrea is doing. Uh, really important stuff, obviously. Thanks for being here, and I will see you next time.